Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the joy, for the hope that is ours, even as we've been singing this morning. We pray that our hearts would be truly um, thankful to you, grateful to you, and um, worshiping you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever thought of the Bible as, at least in part, being what we might call a checkbook of faith. Charles Spurgeon, a well-known pastor in England in the 1800s, wrote a small devotional book called The Checkbook of Faith. And in the preface, he wrote this. And it's a little bit of a longer quote, so just try your best to listen on here. He said, A promise from God may very instructively be compared to a check payable to order. It is given to the believer with the view of bestowing upon him some good thing. It is not meant that he should read it over comfortably and then be done with it. No, he is to treat it at the promise as a reality, as a man treats a check. He is to take the promise and endorse it with his own name by personally receiving it as true. He is by faith to accept it as his own. He sets to his seal that God is true and true as to this particular word of promise. This, is done, this done, he must believingly present the promise to the Lord as a man presents a check at the counter of the bank. He must plead it by prayer, expecting to have it fulfilled. Now, it's not all that the Word of God is, but it certainly contains promises. And obviously, there's a danger here too, right? Um, that the health and wealth, name it and claim it to danger, right? This idea that, that really, I, when I think of God's promises, I really, I really think of is what I want besides God, and God is just a means to get what I want. Good health, money, whatever it might be, okay? So that's a warning. So hear me saying that up front. When I'm talking about God's promises, that's not what I'm referring to. That's not what Spurgeon is referring to. Um, but you know, there's another doubt, and a ver- version of danger, and that is uh, doubting God's promises and therefore, um, reading over it kind of more like an auditor would read over things. You're just kind of interested in all the details, but you, it has no personal bearing to you, right? You're just going to read over it for intellectual curiosity or to see if there's something wrong with it, but it doesn't really have any sort of effect on you. It's not like you're going to the bank with a check in hand saying, this is for me. I'm ready to cash this. And so we can fall into that danger as well. Well, in Psalm 119, which um, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 119, verse 41, in this chapter, um, we have a lot of talk of the Word of God, and specifically in the stanzas we're going to look at today, um, we're going to see uh, God's promises, or at least something about God's promises, and then we're going to see living in light of those promises. That's what we're going to be looking at. That's kind of the main theme. But just a brief introduction to Psalm 119. You'll notice, if you didn't already know this, it is the longest chapter in the Bible. So it is quite long. It's 176 um, verses. It has one grand theme, right, which is the Word of God. And it uses eight different synonyms throughout this section or through this chapter to refer to the Word of God. Um, Things like precepts or commandments or um, law, things like that. And uh, its, its goal is really to help shape us so that we admire and value God's word. That's the goal of it. That's the reason we have this poetry in the Bible, because poetry does communicate fact, and then it stirs you, though. It communicates in such a way that stirs you to have some sort of affection, right? Love or hatred or something like that. And here it's love for God's word, and specifically for God himself. The re- we are a people of the book, right? As Christians, we are. Um, the reason we are is because it's God's words, though. In this psalm, over 211 times, it uses the, the your, kind of that, that 
personal possessive pronoun referring and referring to God. That's, that's the, the antecedent in, in this psalm over and over again. It's pointing back to God. So it refers to um, the word of God over and over again, but even more than that, it refers to God himself over and over again. What, well, the point is, we love God's word because we love God. In God's word, we hear from God. So it's God's word, right? It is word. It, it's, it's words on a page for us, but it's God's word. And so that's why we love the Bible. Our goal in reading the Bible is to um, see God more clearly, right? To, to love him more dearly and to follow him more nearly. That's the goal of reading the Bible. Now, uh, Psalm 119, it's all about the Bible. It's all about the word of God. And it's, it's set up as an acrostic poem. Uh, so it's got 22 different stanzas, we'll call them, right? Um, and you'll notice if you look at your Bible, it's got a transliteration above each of those stanzas, which each stanza has eight lines in it, and then it's got a, a heading, right? Aleph or uh, Beth or Bet, and then it, it keeps going down. So those correspond to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 of them. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So lo and behold, that's what we have happening here. It basically is the A to Z of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and so, it, so what would happen is in each of those stanzas, if it was in English, the, the first stanza, those first eight verses, every line would begin with the letter A. And then the next stanza, every line would begin with the letter B and, and so on. It goes all the way through the alphabet. And so that's what's happening here. And so we end up with a kaleidoscope, a, a multifaceted uh, look into the wonder of God's word is what Psalm 119 is doing for us. And um, today we're going to look at two stanzas that are unique and yet they're related to one another in that they both show us what it is to live with our hope set on God. And it's going to focus on the word of God but it, the, the, the starting out point of both stanzas is hope in God. And since we have hope in God, what does that look like? And then he, he goes on and he fleshes that out for us. Um, you know, how does one who has the promises of God um, live? You know, if we, if we have access to the bank of heaven, the promises of heaven, how does that affect the way we live? And so that's what our outline is going to be today. We're going to look first and see, first of all, I just want to point out that this, we can, we can see the Bible in some fashion as a checkbook of faith, uh, of hope for us. And then we'll go into each of the stanzas in turn and look more specifically about what that looks like in each of those stanzas. Um, the, the first one's going to focus more, just to give you a hint, the first one's going to be more just kind of life in general. The second one's going to focus on affliction um, because that's what we have this side of heaven, don't we? We have joys and we have sorrows. That's, that, that is life, this side of heaven. And so we, it, the Bible addresses both of those. So we want to learn from the psalmist what it looks like to live as those who have access to the bank of heaven. So look at verse 41, and then we're going to skip down to the beginning of the next stanza. So uh, let me read verse 41, and then we'll skip down to verse 49. It says, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. And then look down at verse 49 and 50. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. So in part, we have the Bible as being a checkbook of promises. Uh, the, the word, if you're reading the New American Standard, which is what we have in the Pew Bibles, you'll, you'll notice that it says, I, I read the word promise, that's the ESV, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, it uses the word promise, uh, 
you, you'll have the word word, and then it'll probably be footnoted, and it will say, can be translated as promise. Um, the word just refers to anything God has spoken, commanded, or promised. So it does have a broad um, dictionary definition, right? And in this context, though, so in, does, does promise fit the dictionary definition? Yes, it does. There's no dispute about that. Um, and I think it actually fits the context here. I think, I think the ESV is helpful in pointing out that this is probably referring to specifically promise of God, uh, because um, it, it's not just God's generic word that gives me, so if you look at it, in both those verses, one of them, it says, it talks about how you get salvation, uh, your promise is giving me salvation, your, your promise is giving me life. What word is it from God that gives us salvation and life? It's the word of his promise. You understand what I'm saying? It's the promises he's made, like, I'm going to send a savior into the world, right? There will be no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Those are promise words that God gives us. So they are words of God, broadly speaking, but even a, there's a subset there of promise. And I think that's what we have happening here in this psalm. I think that's where the psalmist begins. And uh, we see this through the whole Bible, by the way. I mean, Genesis 3.15 starts out with a promise, right? As soon as you have the fall into sin, you have a promise, right? That there's going to be the seed of the woman who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. So as soon as sin enters the world, promise is the hope that people are looking to, Adam and Eve are looking to, right? Um, Genesis 6-9, uh, Noah, now there's judgment, but there's promise, right? Noah and his family will believe God, enter the ark, and be spared of judgment that they would deserve. Genesis 15, to Abraham, there's a covenant. There's, there's a promise that's made to Abraham and to the world through Abraham. And so we, the, the Bible's repl- replete with promises, and that seems to be the way the storyline unfolds. Um, both these stanzas begin with these statements of promises of God. It's, it's as if the, the psalmist begins in, in both of these by going to the bank of heaven and saying something like this. This is my paraphrase of verse 41. He might say, let your, your love and your salvation come just as you have written on this check of promise. He comes up to the, to the window again. Remember the promise that I have been banking my hope on and finding my comfort in. I am here to draw upon the account for my spiritual sustenance, for my hope and for my peace and my affliction. That's, I think that's the picture we could, we could get, right? That's an illustration, but you get the point. That's, that's what's going on. So with this in mind, we want to look at each stanza and learn uh, the way the psalmist then, he, he has these promises, and then what does that mean for daily life? Uh, how, how does that affect daily life? So let's look at the first stanza, verses 41 through 48. And we'll see that God's promise of steadfast love drives us to his word. So the promise of steadfast love from God drives his people to his word. Uh, Verse 41, we'll read that one more time. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. So this this specific um, shining star is the brightest in the sky for us, isn't it? God's steadfast love and his salvation that comes according to his steadfast love. Uh, God, steadfast love, God's attitude. His attitude is one of unending, constantly pursuing me love. If I'm his child, that is my experience. Um, and we find uh, his action of salvation. So let me talk for a minute, though, about steadfast love. You're probably familiar with this as we've been looking at Psalms occasionally, but the word is hesed, which refers to, like I mentioned, his, his unfailing, constant, never giving up, always pursuing his people love. That's what we mean when we talk about his steadfast love. Um, it, it's, a, it's a loaded word. And here, it's, in, it's actually in the plural. So I think the idea here is, is this idea that it's a multi, we're looking at the multi-faceted display of 
all the many ways you show steadfast love. It's, it's like we're just piling up example after example of your steadfast love. This is the promise I have, that you are the type of God that has this sort of attitude towards your people, towards me, if I'm one of your people, right? And we're just stacking it up. It's, it's like the psalmist says in Psalm 36, 5, your steadfast love, there I think it's singular, I didn't look, but the idea is the same. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds. It's kind of like that. We just keep heaping up examples of your steadfast love and it goes to the heavens. Salvation refers to God's act in rescuing his people. Um, the, the fullness of salvation obviously comes even later in time than the psalmist is living with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who was promised back in Genesis 3.15, at the very first book of the Bible, and he comes and we have salvation in him. He comes to live that perfect obedient life to the law of God, to die in the place of sinners because we deserve condemnation, and to be raised from the grave so that by trusting him we can have life eternal. And so that is where this is all going. And, and so this is all, so what he's saying here is, you know, according to your promise, I, I want your steadfast love, your salvation, according to your promise, according to that word where you have promised ongoing steadfast love and salvation for me. That's, where I, that's why I'm coming here to the bank of heaven with that check in hand, that hope in hand. And it's, and what's, it's so encouraging, isn't it? Because it's not just action without love. God saves, but he really does it completely against his will and has no love for me in his heart, right? Or some sort of like cheap version of love that's not chesed love, where it's like, well, he's got this nice saccharine feeling towards me, but he's not gonna do anything about it. He just, it's all words, doesn't mean anything. That's not what we have here. We have the steadfast love of God enacted through his saving purposes and work, all based on the promises he's made. That's what we have happening here. Eternal love issuing forth into eternal life. His heart and his hand both stretched out towards his people. So what are the effects of knowing his saving promise? To to know God's multifaceted, constant love that issues in our salvation must do something in us. It has to. I mean, it's, it's like a fire. If, if, if things are functioning rightly in your body, when you're near a fire, you're going to feel warm. On a cold night, you stand by a fire, you're going to feel warm. It's the same thing here, right? To, to have a properly functioning affection towards God and to know his affection towards me, I'm going to set, there's going to be something going on. So what happens? How does it affect us? And in fact, I think that's the, the grammar of this of this uh, stanza, the structure of it, points us to that's what's going on. He's showing us the effects of it because um, vav, um, so yours may say w-a-w, but it'd be pronounced vav, um, that, that Hebrew letter um, is one of the ways it gets used in Hebrew, one of the main ways it gets used is at the beginning of a word, if it's gonna be used at the beginning of the word, it's a, it's a um, conjunction. It's like and, and this, and this, then this and this, right? Um, And so that's, in fact, the lines here are really beginning with that and kind of continuation idea. Now, the English translations don't always do that because they're trying to kind of, you know, the repetition for us wouldn't kind of translate exactly the same way, so I get it. But it's a little unhelpful as well because you kind of miss what the point is, which is it's this and, 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 it's connected. And so, so for example, verse 42, he just gets done talking about the steadfast love of God, the salvation of God. He's coming to the bank, that's his his hope. And he says, uh, then... I shall have an answer, right? It's like in light of this, then this, and this, and this. And he's gonna keep going down the line here. It has this effect on me. That's where he's gonna go. And so um, we're gonna go through these quickly 
Um, uh, I think I've got seven of them here, and then we're going to have another six or seven in the next stanza. That's a lot. We're going to go through it quickly. Um, so what I would encourage you to do is just pick one or two and take that away and say, I'm going to meditate more on this. I'm going to think more on this one or that one, right? The big thing that I really want you to walk away with, though, is it starts with banking on God's promises, and then, yes, in light of that, all these other things flow. So, so the solution here is not really to say, okay, which one of these am I really struggling with, and let me just fix that. I, I think what it is is to say, oh, I do, I do really need to grow in these things, but the root issue is I need to grow in believing your promises, banking my life on your promises, because that's what issues in all this other stuff down here. That's what brings forth all this other stuff down here. You see what I'm saying? It's like, it's like you have the, the root is the hope in God's promises, that produces the fruit of what we're about to look at. It won't do to just go around stapling fruit to stuff and thinking it's going to work out. So we got to start with the root. But the fruit does matter. The fruit does show, okay, I need to grow in trusting in your promises. And maybe I could zoom in on promises that are going to help with these areas where I'm not seeing the fruit produced, right? That's, that's the type of fertilizer that I need, is the one that's going to help with this issue. Does that make sense? Okay, let's keep... Moving here, seven effects of knowing God's saving promise, verses 42 through 48. Verse 42, uh, we can answer the taunts from others with a trust in God's word. Look at verse 42. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. So in living the committed life to God, trusting in his promises, you will face taunts um, from other people, even those claiming to, to believe in God. Right? Well, you're just not with it. You, you believe the Bible says this because you just don't go along with what culture says and you're not really in anymore. Um, all the while maybe claiming to believe there's a God. The point is, some form or fashion, we're going to face taunts. People making fun of our hope, our way of life, our morality. Um, and, and just like the playground bully, those who offer such taunts do so because they don't have a stable foundation. So what do you do when you're not secure and sure in what you believe? It looks more like a middle school cafeteria getting in a fight over stuff. That's what it ends up looking like. We see that all around us in the world, by the way. We should not be surprised by that. Why are people, everything is all name-calling, insulting, and all this other stuff, whether they're right or left or whatever? Because if you're not a Christian, you have no solid foundation. That's the best you can come up with. And so we have the foundation, the secure foundation of God's promises and God's word. And so thus, those who have hope in God's promises are able to respond to taunts with trust in God's word. If we have the smiling promises of God, we can trust his words even in the face of those who have scorning looks towards us. So we have his promises and we can trust in his word. Um. So we don't fear taunts, but we do fear something. We fear our own sin and our own doubts getting in the way of us believing God's promises. Um, Look at verse 43. This is the second one. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. So this take not the the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. Um, What is it that, that would take the word of truth out of my mouth? I think what he means is it's it's like, well, when I get bound up in sin. It's hard to confidently have his word in my mouth to others and even to myself, isn't it? Right? I mean, that brings in doubt. It doesn't bring in hope. Um, My own doubts do that too. Just doubt can bring that in. And so I think what he's saying is keep me from sin and keep me from doubt. It's like saying, help me not live in a way that through my own sin and my doubts, that um, it, it knocks the spiritual wind out of me. Right? You've all had that experience where the wind's been knocked out of you. 
I can vividly remember the first time that happened to me at a playground, swinging on something, falling, landing on my back. I thought I was going to die, right? I mean, the first time that happens, you're like, this is not normal. I cannot breathe. But that's what, he, that's what he's saying here. Don't let my doubts and my sins, don't let me hit the ground like that so that it knocks the spiritual wind out of me. If you're a true believer, you, I, it's not that you've lost your life, but it can knock the wind out of you right? And so I think we, we would f- rightly fear that. That would be a response to knowing God's promises is I don't want to, to lose this uh, subjective experiential side of the hope that I have. I want to maintain that. The objective reality is there, but I, I want the experience of hope in you. So do you find yourself lacking ability to credibly speak God's word of hope due to your sins and doubts? Um, you know, listen, if, if you're not a Christian, then you, you really do have good reasons to not have hope. And, and the call to you, though, is God offers hope through Jesus Christ. There is no sinner too bad to receive such forgiveness and forgiveness, and, and there is uh, no one so good that they don't need it, right? That's the hope that we have. But, but, but uh, here I'm really focusing on believers, and so back to, to you, if you're believing in Jesus, and, and this is you, you're struggling with this, and it's not because you're, you're not... Um, committed to Jesus, you're not, a, you're not one of his children, you really are one of his children, um, then look to his word, look to the promises. Uh, the word here that he refers to, rules, is, is things like authoritative pronouncements. Some of those authoritative pronouncements of promise that God gives us are like his judicial renderings of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what do you do with your sin when it knocks the spiritual wind out of you? You believe that promise. You confess your sin. You, you say, God, I don't want to keep going this way. Help me, right? Christians aren't people who are perfect. We're people who are repenting and trusting in Jesus alone. Well, number three, we obey his teaching continually. You might say 24-7 is the point here. Look at verse 44. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. So the word law there is Torah, which actually is broader than what we think of when we think of law. And it does include that. That is one of the main facets of it would be like the Ten Commandments, that type of stuff. Uh, But it is broader than that. It refers to his teachings, his instruction, right? So he's saying, I will keep your instruction, your teaching continually. To keep is to obey, That's what we're talking about here. And um, did you notice the words he stacked up there? Continually, forever, and ever. So I think that's the emphasis is 24-7, I want to be obeying your word. That's what I want. Um, Now, that's his aspiration. It doesn't mean that he's perfect in that because even by the end of Psalm 119, the very last verse, verse 176, he ends by saying this, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Again, you see the difference is a Christian's not one who lives perfectly. He says, I'm going astray here. But what, what marks him out as belonging to God is that I do not forget your commandments. I, I always run back to home base by your grace. That's where I'm going. And so that should be true of us. We, we want, if you're a Christian, if you have the great precious promises of God, you want to obey 24-7. Now I understand there are moments, so that, that's like the big picture There are moments in the 24-7 where you don't, otherwise you wouldn't sin. You and I sin. So there are moments, yes, where through unbelief and through doubt, we don't believe and obey. And what do we do, though? By God's grace, we repent, right? We turn back. So I desire to obey God's word. Um, uh, When I'm alone with my family, at work, um, the one who has an account at the bank of heaven wants to do this. That's true. If you have that account, you want to live in line with that reality. 
Now, with all this talk of obedience, we shouldn't make the foolish mistake of assuming that God's word ends up being restrictive for those who have his promises. Look at verse 45, where we're going to look at the freedom of applying God's word to our life. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. So this is number four. Those who have God's precepts, uh, who um, seek his precepts, that is his, uh, the detailed application of God's word, there's a detailed application, they find it liberating. L- literally, the idea of wide place is liberty. You've set me at liberty, at freedom. You have given me wide open spaces to roam in. Um, and so we recognize that those who have God's promises, what, one of the effects it has is that his, his ways, his commands are not burdensome anymore. Now, I understand, again, in my fallen nature, there are times where it's burdensome. I get that. But what I mean is, like, overall, we recognize, even though I feel that way, I know my feeling is wrong, this is actually freeing. So, so it's, kind of like, um, it's kind of like, you know, if you took a tuba and, you know, one of those, like, marching ones, the little sousaphone thing, and you tried to go snorkeling with that, is that freedom? You're like, well, I'm free. I can use it however I want. Don't tell me how I can use the tuba. You're going to drown. It will sink you, Right? That is not freedom. Freedom is using the tuba for what it was made for and using the snorkel for what it was made for. That is freedom. And that's what we have in the commands of God. He is the designer. He is the maker. He is the creator. His design is not cumbersome. It is good. I understand the world all around us and even my own flesh. At times, I feel that way. The point is, I'm wrong. He's right. It's kind of like arguing with someone about how I'm going to take the tuba on the snorkel expedition. I can argue till I'm blue in the face. I can feel right. I can feel vindicated, but I will sink. So we come to God's word and we recognize that he gives us the proper design. He frees us from it, from the sands of changing opinions of the culture, the shackles of my own sin, anxiety that comes from a self-directed life. It gives us freedom. To, To live by the book gives us freedom. Well, do you struggle to believe God's word and apply it to yourself? Do you struggle to believe that that is truly freeing? Uh, Psalm 23, verse 1, may be a good promise to go to. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Uh, the, The Lord's fence around his good protective place for his people is freeing, isn't it? It means you can wander far and wide and enjoy the breadth of God's blessings and he keeps you out of the desert, wasteland. Isn't that freeing? That's not restrictive. It's not restrictive to, be, to tell a sheep, keep a sheep from wandering into desert wasteland and off the edge of a cliff. And so maybe, you need to, maybe that could be the meditation of one of God's promises that helps when you find yourself feeling restricted rather than freed by God's precepts. Number five, we speak his testimony boldly. Um, Verse 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. So knowing God's promises, we are emboldened to speak on his behalf, to say what he says without fear. His testimonies are the words that bear witness about his character, what he said, what is true, what is right. That is what his testimonies refer to. So so the psalmist can speak this way because why? He knows the all-knowing, always right in all he does, king of the universe. And if I have his word, I can speak that with confidence. 
If I went around just telling you this is what I think God is. By the way, this is why so, false religions are so arrogant. The ones, especially if they don't have a book, right? To go around just saying, I've, I have this. I mean, the philosophers of our day do this, by the way. In many ways, they've just replaced the, the, the priest of old, right? Except at least the priest had a book they pointed to, even if they were wrong oftentimes in the way they interpreted it. They become the book, the philosophers do. I'm the book. I will inform you on what the enlightened life looks like. But no, we have the written word of God. And so we have no reason to be ashamed because God's words will not fail. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is right in all he does. His words will not fail in the end. So I don't have to be ashamed to speak his words. We shouldn't be afraid to live out his word, um, to even to speak it to those in authority. Um, this doesn't mean that we go around always looking for opportunities to speak it to authority, right? Our world is becoming more and more, let's just cast off every authority all around us. Um, we, we do have to think biblically and carefully about authority. We've, we've even written a whole position paper on that. But, but our inclination is not always, oh, authority, let's cast that off. But we are willing, because we have God's word, when it contradicts what God says, to say, this is what the king of kings says. And I'm not afraid to say that. But it doesn't mean we always are looking for it, but it means if it comes to us, we have to be ready to do it. So think of Daniel and his friends. They were ready and willing to speak what God had said. We must pray to the one true God. We can't, I can't stop praying to him and just pray to you, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Or, or all the other things he told Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I can't, it's, I've got to do what God says. And they did it without fear. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't a physical sensation of fear. I get that. But what I, what I mean is, a, I'm going to do it because it's right no matter how I feel. That's courage. You can't really have courage if you don't have fear, right? Courage is, I feel afraid. I know it's the right thing to do. I'm going to do it anyway. That's courage. And so if you struggle with this, I would encourage you, think of the promises about the coming Savior that God would send. How many promises do we have the luxury now of looking back on, and they were fulfilled in time, space, history, evidenced that this, is, this God, when he says stuff, he does it. Those promises should give me courage to say all these other things that he says in here to people. Not out of a self-righteousness. This is not self-righteousness. This is, this is what God said. I would be... I would be arrogant to to not say what he said right now not i'm not arrogant to say it now i can say what he says in an arrogant way and we we don't want to do that but we want to say it truthfully courage boldness forthrightness his word is authoritative well next we delight in his commands verse 47 for i find my delight in your commands which i love um Everything god has said comes out of his steadfast love that type of character and therefore it is good it is right um, and so we want to um, delight in his commandments. I don't just want to do them. I want to delight in them. I'm happy in what you say. So do you, um, do you think of God as love? Well, if so, then you should obey his commands. You should obey what he says. Um, John Phillips wrote this. I think I, I quoted this before in a, in a previous sermon on Psalm 119, but it's worth repeating. He said, the more we know the word of God, the more we will love God. So you see that. No more of God's word, love God more. The more we love God, the more we will love the word of God. It's a spiral stairway to glory. And so I think that's what he's saying here. The more I know your word, the more I come to love you, and therefore the more I love your word and delight in your word. And it just continues to spiral up. So God's steadfast love draws me to love his commands. Uh, Verse 48, number seven we meditate on his statutes. I, statutes. I will lift up your, my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. So to lift up hands is the idea here of yearning for, wanting, right, looking for, 
um, reaching for his statutes, his permanent words, words that were etched permanently by the king of kings. That's what that idea is. And it, really, it translates into action, which is meditation, which is uh, thinking deeply about what it says, what it means, how it applies. Not just kind of surface level reading it, right? It's not, it's not the way you might just read a textbook just to learn something that you're not interested in. No, this is deep reading here. Um, so there, there's, a, there's kind of looking deeply into the words of God. And, um, and that's what we find. We find this idea to meditate. I mean, think about it. So if you're struggling, to, sometimes we struggle to set aside time and desire to meditate on God's word. But if we have the very words of God, uh, God who has steadfast love for us, if we have his words, wouldn't we want to examine every jewel that he has given us in the safety deposit box of heaven? If we were told there's a safety deposit box, the safety deposit box of heaven, it has all these jewels for you. We'd be fools not to take the key we've been given and go and open the box and not just once but over and over again and examine the jewels that God has laid for us. That's what, I think that's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying here. I want to meditate on it. I want to look at them. I want, I want to turn them over in my hand and examine them. So remember the riches you have. Don't sit idly. Get up and go to the safe deposit box of heaven where the promises of God are stored up for you, believer. If you're, if you're struggling to believe God's promises and, and to, to meditate, think about the treasures that are yours and go to the safety deposit box. Get off the idle couch and go and read it. Memorize it so that it's stuck in your head. Well, we want God to give us a proper appraisal of his word so that we will meditate on it. I think that's what we're saying here. So in this first stanza, we've seen the promise of God should result in things like trust, um, of his word, hope in his word, which, which is kind of a des- I desire not to sin. I want to have that hope constant. Uh, obedience, freedom, bold proclamation, delight, and meditation. Those are some of the things we find that result, issue from a heart that is clinging to the steadfast love of God, steadfast loves of God, right, that he has for his people. Now, the next stanza is going to do the same idea, the same type of thing, but the context is one of affliction, of difficulty, so, so let, let's look at this. God's promises give life and comfort in affliction. Look at verses 49 through 56. I'll, I'll read verse 49 and 50. You'll see it begins similar to the way the other one did. Verse 49. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. So the context is one of affliction. You see that in verse 50, right? Affliction. And he talks about how his, his word gives him hope. His, his promise gives him hope. Um, it, it's important to realize when we think about it, um, this is helpful for us to have this, this section here. Uh, I mean, all God's word is helpful, but it's helpful because having the promises of God does not mean you will not have affliction. Right? I mean, that is an inference of this verse. I have your promises and I have affliction. Both of those things are true. So we, this, this keeps us from the health and wealth side of the gospel, or, you know, the false gospel. Um, it gives us true, genuine hope. So, so the, the people who, who know God and his word, they, they have affliction, but they have hope in the midst of it. Which is to say, by the way, that if I have hope, it means I don't actually possess the full experience of it right now because it, hope by definition means I'm looking ahead to the thing I don't have the fullness of. Otherwise, you don't hope for what you already have in full in your experience, Right? 
So, so there's this looking ahead. So it's a looking ahead. I don't have it all in my hands right now. That's what we're talking about. Spurgeon, in that checkbook of faith I mentioned earlier, he writes this. If he has come, the believer, has come to heaven's bank at the right date, he will receive the promise, um, promised amount at once. So you come with that promise, and God provides all that is, is, is intended with that. If the date should happen to be further on, however, he must patiently wait till its arrival. But meanwhile, he may count the promise as money, for the bank is sure to pay when the due time arrives. And so I think that's what we have here. Uh, this verse has the word remember in it. It appears three times in verse 49, verse 52, verse 55. And here the psalmist is calling on God, for, in the first instance here, calling on God to remember his promises. Um, I, I think here the word to your servant, that promise, it could refer to specifically this promise that there's going to be one in the line of David who will rule over God's people. That it could be that, because if you go back to 2 Samuel, um, he refers to, the, when he's giving the promises to David, he keeps referring to him as my servant, David. And so this would fit also what's happening in the Psalms. A lot of times you have the Davidic king or the one, uh, or at least they're longing for the Davidic king over and over again. Uh, we know the fullness of this comes in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is king of kings. He is the one David pointed to. Um, but the, the point can still be extrapolated from this that, that the hope comes from calling out to God to remember his promises. And by the way, remember here doesn't mean, God, I think you forgot this. I'm going I'm to refresh your memory. Whenever it refers in scriptures to God remembering, what we're talking about is act in accordance with what you've said. That's what I'm calling on you to do. You've said this. God, can the time be now for you to do that? It's, it's not saying, God, remember, because you forgot, and if you don't remember, it's not going to happen. No, it's going to happen. He said it. It's, can the time be now? Remember it. C- can you act now in the way, fullness of what you said here? So I think that's what's going on. So remember the word to your servant. And, he's, and thus, our comfort in affliction is what? It's God's promises. It's, again, going back to that fire, it's, it's like a fire on a cold night. That's what the idea of comfort is here. It's cold, the fire is comforting, it's warming. And so I want you to do that. That's what you keeping your promises, remembering your promises is like. So having this um, hope and comfort, how does that play out in the midst of our afflictions? And that's what we find in the next section, the effects of his life-giving promise on our times of affliction. What are the effects of God's life-giving promise on our lives in times of affliction? Look at verse 51. The first one here is, I think I have six here, by the way. Um, When attacked by the arrogant, we cling to the word of God. Look at verse 51. Let me read it for us. It says, The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. The word insolent here is those who would be boldly rude. They step across a line. Scoffers, kind of like the same idea you have in Psalm 1, those who scoff the word of God. Um, And so they will come, they will deride, they will mock our confidence in God, our morality that we live by because of God, our supernaturalistic view of the world. Um, they They will mock our failing to live up to the word of God at times. Oh yeah, you, you believe in God. Why, why did you just you know, mouth off over here? How can you be a Christian? So there's mocking, there's scoffing. Have you faced such cynics in your life, perhaps family members um, who are that cynical about truth or about your profession of faith? Uh, per, perhaps uh, coworkers? Perhaps Satan right? Satan can't control us. He can't rule over God's people, but he certainly is an accuser of God's people. 
In fact, uh, Martin Luther used to struggle at times with, with these doubts where he was under the assault of Satan. And he wrote to a friend once and offered this counsel who was, this friend was struggling with the same thing. He said, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. So that should be our response to taunts. We cling to God's word when we face the taunts. That is a form of affliction, is it not? The taunts of scoffers. But God's word, we cling to it, and that's how we respond to their taunts. Uh, number two, when affliction, when we're afflicted, we remember and take comfort in God's word. Verse 52 says, When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. This idea of the word I think in Hebrew is the exact same uh, I remember word. So he, what he's saying is here, when I remember your words, when I, which is, I think is a fine way to say it, when I think, when I remember your rules of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Um, so, his, his um, authoritative statements, God's authoritative statements of old give me hope in present suffering, don't they? Um, ancient words are where I drive my anchor when, I, when I'm facing affliction and difficulty. Firmly rooted in the stable ground of God's word. But when, when he sees no present relief in his circumstances, that's the hardest thing about affliction sometimes, isn't it? When you don't see relief up on the horizon. Where does he go? In my present circumstances, I see no relief. So what do I do? I go to your words of old. I go back and I look. Because why? It's like the check register of God's promises. I can go back and say, you fulfilled that one. You paid in full that one. You did what you said you were going to do over here. So what does he do? So, So what do we do? When we're suffering, we go back in the check register of the checkbook of faith, the bank of heaven, and we look and say, God, look at what you've done. I don't see a change. And there may never come a change to the side of heaven in my circumstance. But if you did all that, you're going to do what you promised, right? Those old funds are still available for us to draw on today because the Lord never changes. That's the point. God doesn't change. So when I look back at that, the same funds are really actually still there because God hasn't changed. Third, we hate and mourn the ways of the wicked. Look at verse 53. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. So hot indignation has two different uh, meanings that I think are are complementary here. A strong opposition and displeasure, like anger over the ways of the wicked. But it also has the idea of horror. I am horrified by what is happening around me because of its evil and because of the judgment that is going to fall on such evil one day if there is not repentance. And so... There is hot indignation. Uh, And either way, this fits because if we love God like we saw earlier and we love his word in verse 47 and 48, right? I love your word. I love love it. I delight in it. If you love something, when you live in a world that also has the opposite of that, which we do because there's evil in our world, by definition, you're going to hate certain things. Indifference is not the response to the afflicted people of God when they see the evils around them. Passivity is not the response. Hot indignation is the response. Both a righteous indignation against evil and wickedness, which, by the way, here is defined as what? It's defined as forsaking the law of God. That's what it says. The wicked forsake the law of God. That's what wicked is. Listen, if you don't have God, you have no way to define what evil is. 
I'm glad that people who don't believe in God point at things like what Hamas does or other things and they say, look, this is evil. But in reality, you have no sound reason to say this is evil and this is not evil except for all you're saying is you don't like it. That's what you're telling me. That's the best you can do without a God to ground morality in. But we have God, we have his word, and so we, we're not indifferent, we have hot indignation towards it. Now, th- don't mistake this with self-righteousness. Hot indignation is not, how could you ever do such a thing? I am so much better than you, you're on your way to hell and I'm going to heaven. That's not what it means when it says hot indignation. Because what it is is an anger, a righteous anger that says, the king of the universe has said to do this and you're doing the exact opposite in his face. And I am horrified because of that, because there is judgment that hangs over you. And I deserve the same judgment. But the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So would you repent and believe, because there is hope for you. So, this is the response that we have. Um, Fourth, in affliction, we sing. We sing the words of God. Look at verse 54. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. So sojourning, again, this carries the idea of afflictions because the idea of I'm not home yet, I'm in a foreign land, I'm surrounded by enemies um, could be part of the idea, but it certainly is I'm not home yet. And we know that. This world is not our home. There's something broken in this world. And so what does he do, though? He says songs. It's not merely sighing, but it's singing. There are other passages in the Bible that tell us about sighing. It's okay to sigh when we suffer. That's true. Ecclesiastes, Job, Psalms, right? We see that. But it's not merely sighing, it's also I can sing because I have the promises of God. So he he can sing, he can have hope in suffering. Uh, Verse 55, this is the the fifth one, remember the Lord when you lie awake. This is what we do in affliction. Um, Verse 55, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. In the night, so there are times where afflictions keep you awake. Difficulties with other people are probably one of the biggest ones if you're younger that keep you awake. Um, as you get older, it's just sufferings and afflictions of old age that might keep you awake, right? But what does he say? In such afflictions, I remember your name in the night. When I am awakened from sleep because of these sufferings and afflictions, I remember your name, Lord, Yahweh, covenant God, promise-giving, keeping God. That's what he's saying. It doesn't just mean remember the syllables, Yahweh. Ah, I've remembered your name. It's What does it mean? Who is he? That's what he's saying. I know your character. I know who you are. That's how I respond to affliction. I remember your name. And how do I know about his name? Because he's given promises, covenants. He's given words. He's spoken. He's acted in history. So in the night, we remember his words. Last, verse 56, I have applied your word. Uh, That is my, I find that to be my job, even in affliction. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Literally, it says, this has become mine. Um, The the ESV translators put in that idea of blessing. I think that's okay. But it it really is literally, this has become mine that I keep your precepts. I keep your specific applications that you give in your word. I seek to keep those and specifically apply them in my life. And that's what's fallen to me. That's what you've given to me to do. Even in affliction. This is hard. This is impossible if God's not at work in us, isn't it? Because in affliction, what is my temptation to do? My temptation is to be, well, maybe God's abandoned me. I guess I'll just abandon him. Or this really is hard. I have a way of an escape over here. This temptation looks really pleasing right now. It's a way to escape, to check out. 
But what's fallen to me, even in affliction, if I have the promises of God, and you see, you see how this gives relational heat to what we're talking about here, that God has set such love on us and giving us these promises. He doesn't just say, keep my word, I don't care. It is steadfast love, covenant-keeping God. And so because of that, because of those promises, when I go to the, the, the bank of heaven and I withdraw on those promises, I can say, God, help me to keep your word. That's what you've given me to do, even in my affliction, even in my suffering. So we must live by the checkbook of faith. May 2024 be that sort of year where we live by the promises of God. Again, if you're, if you're not one of God's people, these promises, you need them, right? They come only through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the call to you, even the command to you would be repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is hope. All these promises, this account is opened up to you if you are in Christ. So that would be the pleading today. Brothers and sisters, those of us who know Christ, who are in Christ. Banking on God's steadfast salvation means we frequently draw on the checkbook of faith. We frequently go to the checking account of heaven and draw forth his promises. Now, I'm gonna close with this. Near the end of the checkbook of promises, Spurgeon has on December 26th for that, that day, he has the apostle Peter's words where he says, he will never, I'm not gonna leave you, Lord. Even if they all leave you, I'm not gonna leave you. Does that sound strange to you in a book on the promises of God? It should, First of all, it's Peter's words, talking about what he's going to do. Second of all, does Peter keep those words? Peter crashes and burns. He denies Jesus with an oath. So after acknowledging that, Spurgeon says, this is why I'm including this. What is man's word? An earthen pot broken with a stroke. He goes on and says, On thine own resolve, don't depend at all. On the promise of your God hang time and eternity. This word and the next, or sorry, this world and the next hang on his word. Yours for you and for all of your beloved ones. So this page is meant as a warning as to what bank to draw upon and whose signature to accept. God's words, not mine. We make all sorts of resolutions at the beginning of the year, and we should. I mean, we should be thinking, we should live thoughtful lives. But may 2024 be the year where all those are undergirded by the promise of God like we just saw. These things the psalmist says he's gonna do, they're good. Say you're gonna do them. Ask God to help you do them. But your hope is in God's word. Accept his signature, not even your own signature. Only the signature of God is where you want to go. That type of check is what you wanna go to the bank of heaven with because his promises give life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for your great and precious promises. May we be a people who regularly frequent the bank of heaven. Through your word, would we regularly be in it, be reveling in your promises, be warned by your rebukes, and find all of your commands to be life-giving to your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.